Hey, hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to episode 31 of Raw Talk, where scientists talk and we listen. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm really excited to introduce you to our guest on today's episode, Dr. Jillian Einstein. Dr. Einstein is a cognitive neuroscientist in the Department of Psychology and the director and founder of the Collaborative Program in Women's Health at the University of Toronto. She also holds the Wilfred and Joyce Pawson's chair in Women's Brain Health and Aging. Her lab takes a multidisciplinary approach to understand how sex and gender shape cognition and brain health, combining cognitive and systems neuroscience, neuroendocrinology, and public health. So it's not a surprise that we had a lot to talk about. In fact, our conversation starts off with Dr. Einstein recounting her time in graduate school and what it was like transitioning from an art history major to neuroscience. We then got into the distinction between sex and gender, the significance both play in studying the brain and how she's teased apart their influence in some of her studies. And finally, Dr. Einstein talks about the motivations behind her book and course, Sex and the Brain, and the steps new students can take to incorporate sex and gender analysis to their work. As always, feedback, love, support, that's all we ask for. So be sure to hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Raw Talk Podcast. Enjoy the show. Let's talk about your transition from art history to systems neuroscience. Um, because for me, one of the most exciting things to talk about on the show are these inflection points, these tipping points in someone's career. And I mean, when people look at you now, they see your accomplishments, a successful research program, these awards. But from what I've read, you had a tough time making this transition. It was, it was hard at first. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I decided to make the transition when I was sitting on the steps of an art museum at, at Harvard. I was an undergraduate at Harvard, and I was sitting on the steps of the art museum, and I was talking to a friend of mine. We were both in the same course, and it was called Persian Miniature Paintings of the Mughal and Rajput Era. And I said to her, Joyce, you know, we make up these stories about what line and color do and how they influence, you know, our feeling about this picture, but there must be a field that actually studies how people see. And this woman actually said to me, yes, there is. It's called neurobiology. It's like it was out of a fortune cookie. And I thought, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to study neurobiology because I want to understand how people see things from a more mechanistic point of view and not just from something that I make up from the outside. So I just started taking courses that would enable me to apply to graduate school in what I finally decided was anatomy, which doesn't really exist anymore as a field. But at the time, it was the study of the cell biology of neurons. So I studied neuroanatomy. Because I thought, well, I know how to look at pictures and read patterns. And so that's probably a good start for going into under, you know, looking through a microscope and seeing how cells form patterns and stuff. So that's how I made the switch. And I just started volunteering in a lab, a bunch of labs, actually, one that focused on electron microscopy and ultimately one that focused on the nervous system, but not vision. And finally, I got into a vision lab. And for a while, I made the transition from vision research to Alzheimer's by actually going to hum um, autopsies and filling neurons in the human brain of mm -hmm. people with Alzheimer's disease and also controls with dye to understand what happens to the connectivity of neurons in Alzheimer's disease. When did sex and gender come into your work then? Okay. How'd you come to understand that and then engage it? Was it, was it something you were deliberating or contemplating for a long time? You're just waiting for the right time and resources or you just, 
you just had it. Well, I tell people I've always been a feminist. I grew up in, well, my dad was in the Air Force, and we lived in this small town in Texas for a while. Mm -hmm. And uh, my mother would, with some other mothers, bring in movies of famous people to sort of inspire the kids. So on Saturday morning, I saw, the one I remember was of Mary Curie stirring the vats of radium. Mm -hmm. And I was so inspired by her that I really wanted to be a scientist. Like, I want to have that passion about what I do. So it was from that moment that I thought being a woman and being a scientist, that would be okay. Okay. Although it turned out in my generation, it wasn't so easy, but... Can we talk a bit about that? Yes, for sure. Yeah. I guess what I'm trying to say is that I was always kind of a feminist and thought, you mm-hmm. know, women should just do what they felt was important in the world. But I didn't really come to understand sex differences until because of my feminist leanings, I was actually part of the advisory board of the Institute for Women and Gender Studies at Duke University when I was there. Mm -hmm. And I decided as sort of my role on the board, I would design a course that would teach substantive biology while at the same time it would be able to be cross-listed with women and gender studies. I see. So most of the courses then that were about science and that were part of women and gender studies were about women in science. So I decided to design this course, and I started reading about hormones and behavior, Mm -hmm. and I thought this would be a great course to teach. And so I just kind of taught myself the field of hormones and behavior, (laughs) putting together this book. Well, first it was a course pack, and then I decided after, I don't know, five years of trying to get really good photocopies of electron micrographs, (laughs) right, and histological stains, I thought, I'm never doing this again. I'm writing a book. Yeah. So I turned it into a book. And that's my book, Sex in the Brain. Sex in the Brain. And you teach that course at the University of Toronto as well? I still teach it, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. I teach it as an undergraduate course most years, but then it gets taught under a slightly different title as a graduate course in psychology every five years. And when you were designing the course, what did you want your students to learn from it? Because you were kind of creating this book, creating the package, the contents for this course, but did you have expectations for what their learning was going to be in the course? And was it also accessible to not only people in the life sciences, but social sciences and humanities as well. The main thing I wanted people to get out of it was that they could read original scientific papers and critique them. Mm -hmm. And not just on the basis of the end isn't big enough, but really from the perspective of the design of the experiment, the interpretation of the results, and the context that kind of motivated the experiment. So we would take these papers apart, each one. In some ways, the actual methods were less important than why did this person do this experiment? What was the idea that they came to it from? What were their assumptions and what are they trying to show by it? Mm -hmm. How does it fit into the rest of the literature? And then looking at the data, do you agree with their interpretation or would you have a different interpretation? You know, because the great thing about the scientific method is you can actually look at somebody's work and critique it on multiple levels, including their interpretation. So I remember there was a very famous paper by Simon LeVay on the gay male brain, basically. It was one of these first papers to study sex differences in the brain, trying to show that the gay male brain was different than the straight male brain. And I looked at his data, and I i mean, I i knew Simon LeVay's vision work, and I have a lot of respect for him as a scientist. And I thought, I, I think he did this experiment as well as you could possibly do an experiment with human autopsy material, <laughs> which is also in and of itself a challenge. 
But I thought I would have had a completely different interpretation. I would have noticed how much variation there was in each bin. You know, there's just a huge amount of overlap between the size of these different nuclei in the histogram for the gay males and the histogram for the straight males. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, he had somebody who was bi, and he put them in the gay bin. So that was another thing that I thought students should realize, you know, how are people making these decisions when they're doing this work, et cetera. So that was the main thing I wanted students to come out with, but I wanted them to appreciate the literature, but to be critical of it, and potentially to be able to see that what was a very strong sex difference in a rodent study might not turn out to be a very strong sex difference in a human study, that there might be differences between humans and rodents. And then to think about, well, what is it that makes that difference? Things like that. That makes a lot of sense because when people think about the difference between sex and gender, they're always trying to find a biological explanation. But I think your work and your group and others also are emphasizing the social and cultural aspect of it. Right. Right. And sometimes you may not just get it from a neuroscience paper. They won't discuss it. Right. So can you kind of comment on that distinction, this biological and this social uh, cultural distinction and why that's important to uh, take into account as well? Sure. Well, if you're thinking about animal experiments, in some sense, the social aspects of it come into what it is the researcher thinks is important to study. So one social aspect, for example, is that everybody studies estrogens in women and androgens in men, <laughs> but we don't really, they're not very many, there are like a handful of scientists who study androgens in women and estrogens in men. And yet, in all the animal work, as far as the developmentally uh, instantiated is the word that comes to mind, but it's a crazy word, instantiated differences in the brain, in males, they're all, except one, mediated by estrogens and not androgens. Mm-hmm. So it's really important to understand what each of these do in each sex, but these hormones are gendered, right? Mm-hmm. So we think one is for men and one is for women. So that's, that's one way of thinking about gender. Um, another way of thinking about gender is, well, what's an important problem? What do you want to understand? So if you're mostly studying sexual behavior from the perspective of males and males mounting, and male response, maybe that is actually, in a sense, a bias on the part of the investigators, most of whom at that time were males, Mm -hmm. and were actually more interested in male sexual response (laughs) than female sexual response. So as a result, we know almost nothing about female sexual response, Mm -hmm. even today. Um, It was only in the late 90s, which probably seems a long time ago to you guys, but not very long ago to me, that we actually came to understand, through careful dissection, that the clitoris actually extends deep inside the vulvar region, uh, deep inside the pelvic region. There's a huge amount of clitoris beyond the external portion of the clitoris. Mm -hmm. And um, we just didn't have any idea about that for a long, long time. So those are two perspectives on what's gendered. Another aspect of gender in an experiment would be who your population is. Who is it that you decide you're going to study? And how do their life circumstances when you're working with humans, how do those actually end up affecting the the results of the research itself? Mm -hmm. So, for example, I would say that although it's probably a no-brainer to say that the Women's Health Initiative study that looked at the effects of estrogen replacement in older women was gendered because it only worked on women, Mm -hmm. it was further gendered by the fact that it worked on women who were over the age of 65 and also women who 
were of a fairly low social economic status because in the United States at that time, the people who were going to participate in a research study, that's where they were going to get their best medical treatment because all medical care in the U.S. at that time was private. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden we have a population that has a particular kind of life and we have to think about how that also affects the outcomes of a study. So all of those are gender. I know the simple way of thinking about gender, whether somebody identifies as male or female, is what is usually topmost in people's mind. But the more prevalent forms of gender are what we would call institutional gender and the social aspects of people's lives, how they're treated. I mean, it's gender that in most countries women are fed last, for mm -hmm. example. But it's also gender that it's men who go into coal mines mm -hmm. and fight wars, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. But you talked a lot about, you know, the different examples of genders and your perspectives on that. But when you're studying the brain, is it better to approach it by teasing apart sex and gender or kind of studying the interactions of it? Right. That's a really good question. And I usually tell people it's important to separate them. Okay. Because, you know, P.B. Medawar said science is the art of the doable. And you have to be able to do an experiment. And if it's too complex, the analysis becomes really, really difficult. That said, you could do an experiment in which you had components of the experiment that would allow you to tap into gender and components of it that would allow you to tap into sex differences. Mm -hmm. And then you might see how the gender and the sex differences are correlated. But it's a complicated problem. And in some respects, it's what's given me big data envy. <laughs> because, you know, once you start really teasing apart all these different aspects of life that could be thought about as gender, you need a whole lot of people to have a successful quantitative study. Yeah. Well, now I kind of want to get into what you're doing in your lab right now. And it's the obvious first question. You've got quite the comprehensive research <laughs> agenda. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're combining systems neuroscience, uh, neuroendocrinology, public health, and women's health. Yeah. How do you even do that? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I keep in mind the bigger issue, okay. which is understanding the whole body. That the brain is not the CEO of the body, and that it's actually itself influenced by all these other body systems, including the world. Mm -hmm. So if I want to understand something about the brain, I need to take all these other circumstances into account. The fact that they're not all related to a single problem makes it a little more complicated. But, you know, I have graduate students, and I also want them to pursue what they find is interesting. So I would say the focus of the lab is really on hormones, but then there are a lot of other areas that students are interested in as well. I'm sure they appreciate that independence and being able to pursue <laughs> what they want. But one project, key project, is um, on estrogen's cognition and aging. So right. could you give us a preview on that and what your work and your group's work has revealed and where do you see it headed in the right. future? So the in model the that I've been using is a model of women who had their ovaries removed before natural menopause. Okay. I, I originally chose this population, specifically the population of women who carry a gene that places them at higher risk for breast cancer and ovarian cancer, so the BRCA gene, the BRCA mutation. I chose this group because, first of all, they had their ovaries removed. <laughs> so that's the major source of 17-beta estradiol, 
And I thought maybe we could understand something about how uh, 17-beta estradiol acts on the brain by studying people in which it's not made. Now, as in any scientific experiment, things get complicated, with humans for sure, things get complicated. And of course, some of these women are on hormone replacement and some of them aren't. So we're also looking at hormone replacement and whether it makes a difference in outcome or not. But I chose these women also because most of them are pretty healthy women. Some of them have had cancer, but a lot of them have not had cancer. And so that made them a unique population in terms of women who had their ovaries removed because a lot of women have had their ovaries removed because they have chronic pain or they have ovarian cancer or they have other endocrine problems that ovarian removal might help with. Mm -hmm. But these women, especially the ones who are having it done prophylactically, they were a healthy population. So I thought it was actually a really nicely controlled study. The ideal that you come up with when you're planning an experiment and what actually <laughs> comes to pass is another story. So we're really working hard to understand all the variations that we're encountering. Uh -huh. What are a couple of these variations that you've been tackling? Well, so for example, many of the women are on hormone replacement. Okay. So the question yeah. is, what happens with hormone replacement? Uh, some of the women have had cancer, so we need to and chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. So we need to figure out whether the chemotherapy has had an effect on their cognition, or yeah. if any changes we're seeing are actually due to the ovarian removal. Mm -hmm. Women are on many different preparations of hormone replacement. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> hey, listeners, it's Kat here. Now, you just heard a little bit about the hormone, brain, and behavior research that Dr. Einstein does in her lab. But I was curious, how did we come to investigate these problems in the first place? What is the link between hormones, the brain, and behavior? Well, in order to answer that, I had to revisit a revolutionary paper that was published almost 60 years ago, titled Organizing Action of Prenatally Administered Testosterone Propionate on the Tissues Mediating Mating Behavior in the Female Guinea Pig. Now that is a mouthful. And just like me, you may be wondering, what does that mean? And what do guinea pigs have to do with hormones, brain, and behavior anyways? As it turns out, quite a lot. The study, conducted by Phoenix, Gerald, Joy, and Young, gave rise to the field of sexual differentiation of the brain and behavior. Prior to the study's publication in 1959, it was clear that sex hormones were responsible for physical differences, like size, between males and females. In turn, scientists thought that discrepancies in behavior between the two sexes were merely a byproduct of their physical differences, or were reflections of social norms and expectations. However, the guinea pig study conducted by Phoenix and colleagues largely dispelled this notion. In their studies, Phoenix et al. injected pregnant female guinea pigs with various doses of testosterone, a male sex hormone, and then looked for any changes in the genitalia or mating behavior of the female offspring. Their experiments showed a number of things. First, given sufficiently large doses of testosterone, genetically female offspring had masculinized genitalia, and they displayed the same mating behaviors as untreated male guinea pigs. So exposure to male sex hormones before birth could significantly alter the physical appearance and the behavior of the guinea pigs, regardless of their genetics. Second, when a smaller dose of male hormones was administered to the mothers, genetically female offspring no longer looked like the males, but they also did not exhibit typical mating behavior of female guinea pigs. Their mating behavior, in fact, was clearly defeminized. So this showed that male hormones could continue to alter mating behavior without necessarily changing the physical appearance. 
Finally, when comparing the guinea pigs who were exposed to male sex hormones before birth with those who were injected with it after, the physical and behavioral differences seen in the former group were permanent. That is, female guinea pigs who were injected with testosterone after birth did not show lasting changes in their mating behaviors. Exposure to male sex hormones before birth seemed to have a permanent effect on behavior in adulthood. So this study effectively showed that hormones had an influence on the areas of the brain that controlled mating behavior, a notion that was rarely entertained in prior research. Since then, the field of sexual differentiation has grown tremendously, and the picture has, unsurprisingly, grown much more complex. As gene-hormone interactions, the cellular mechanisms of hormones, and differences in the specific hormonal influences between different species have been discovered. Further, the implication of the study have led to research on a wide variety of animal and human behaviors, including bird songs, cognitive function, stress, feeding, depression, and anxiety. While some exceptions to the lasting influence of hormones on behavior have been demonstrated, the idea that hormones can influence brain development and behavior long into adulthood has stood the test of time. I took in your CV. There's about like seven research projects, so there's no way we can get through all of them. Yeah. Um, but I did want to talk about dementia and sure. the sex differences in dementia. Um, so is there anything salient when it comes to the premorbid function the clinical expression and the response to treatment when it comes to sex differences, dementia, that you can comment on? Yeah, well, it doesn't look like women have a higher incidence of early dementia like MCI, Okay. so mild cognitive impairment. But it does look like they transition to Alzheimer's disease from mild cognitive impairment differently than men do. Mm -hmm. They're more sensitive to carrying the gene that's the risk factor the for the ApoE4 gene. It doesn't seem to be so important in men. And of course, a much higher number of women have Alzheimer's disease than men, even at the same age. So it's a very controversial issue right now, whether it's mostly because women live longer, or whether it's because there's something in particular about women's biologies or life circumstances that mm -hmm. might predispose them to dementia, but that's something that's really being worked on now. And I'm, I'm happy to say that the area of Alzheimer's disease is an area that's finally coming to understand that it's really important to understand these sex differences. Mm -hmm. I've got this quote here, because again, there's a lot of stuff online. And in one interview, you said, cognition isn't something that just happens in the brain. And I found that fascinating. And I wanted you to kind of elaborate on that and does it have to do with the situated neuroscience concept that you often speak about? I mean, I think our cognition is influenced by the people we're interacting with, the circumstances we're interacting under. Mm -hmm. It's also affected by other body systems. If you have, for example, cardiovascular problems, mm -hmm. biologically, this is going to affect your cognition. It's not just in the brain, right? If your cardiovascular system is not functioning as well, that means that you're not getting as much oxygen delivered to your neurons, et cetera, et cetera. And, and then the endocrine system, of course, affects the brain and neuronal response and the immune system. So that's kind of what I meant. And of course, the immune system is influenced by the stress system. The stress system is influenced by the environment. So you can mm -hmm. just kind of keep going from keep there. Keep going from there, yeah. Hey there, it's Kat again. 
In listening to Dr. Einstein describe her work and the notion that cognition is not something that happens solely in the brain, it's clear that different body systems do not work in isolation. Every part of the human body is intricately connected to a multitude of other functions. Yet, as scientists, we often think about the body as a set of discrete systems and parts, which can be examined, poked, and prodded, independent of each other. In particular, sex and gender can have profound effects not only on the body's biological response, as shown by the guinea pig study by Phoenix and colleagues, but also on our experiences of the world around us. Jabir mentioned the concept of situated neuroscience. For those unfamiliar with the term, this means taking into account all of the factors that may influence the nervous system that you are studying, ranging from the biological, such as the immune or cardiovascular systems, to societal, cultural, and geographic factors. In studying the female body and gender differences, Dr. Einstein emphasizes the need to explicitly reflect on the impact that your own experiences, assumptions, and ideas may have on the research question at hand. This situated neuroscience approach can lead to the questioning of assumptions and the reopening of questions previously thought answered, and being aware of the potential influence of these factors and acknowledging that, just like the body, science cannot exist in a vacuum, makes it possible to uncover areas of research that have previously been ignored. And there's sex differences even in that that has to get taken into account. Yeah, there are. I mean, here's an example of a gender influencing an experiment that's not done. We don't know what happens in men necessarily to their immune systems and their cardiovascular systems when they're on androgen-suppressing drugs. So okay. if a man has prostate cancer, it'd be I really see. interesting to know. I think there are a few cognitive studies, but I'm not familiar with them. But we know a lot about what happens to the immune system when women are on estrogen-suppressing drugs. Well, that's a graduate project for a new student in the lab. <laughs> Anybody here? <laughs> okay, well, I just want to shift gears a bit before we wrap up in terms of diversity in science. Uh, what do you make of the situation nowadays? You, were, you spoke about your lived experiences as a woman in science and the event organized this past summer. It was never addressed. Yeah. Um, can you speak on your day-to-day and how you feel the academic community is kind of filling in this gap or aiming to fill this gap in diversity? So my day-to-day is pretty good in general. Uh, I'm in a psychology department where a lot of the faculty are women. It might be different if I were in, I don't know, cell and systems biology or I don't know what genetics is like, molecular genetics. So it's pretty good. It is true that in arts and sciences, Associate professors who are women are promoted after a much longer time than associate professors who are men. So there are still some quiet, I don't know what's going on there, right? I mean, you could say, well, it's because they don't publish as much. Well, maybe they don't publish as much because they're often given higher teaching loads or more administrative duties. It's really hard to tease these things apart, but it does turn out that it takes women longer to get to full professor than men in general. So that's uh, something that's ongoing. It's also the case that many men still don't really value their female colleagues. They behave better than they used to. But I think the potential lack of collegiality, that's still there in many, many cases. So I think things have gotten a lot better, and they're not as overt. And in some ways, that's good. And I do find that people confuse... Uh, what they call the gender dimension of research, so equity and diversity, with the science of sex differences. 
and I see them as very distinct. So I can you talk about that? Sure. Yeah. I think studying sex differences and identifying whether you're studying a problem in males or females or potentially studying it in both sexes leads to scientific rigor, mm-hmm. reproducibility of results. You end up knowing something about a particular population. And if you're testing drugs, you might find out that it works in one group but not another group. Mm-hmm. And that might be life-saving yeah. or life-denying. Lots of drugs have been taken off the market because they hadn't been tested in women and they had adverse effects in women. But the gender dimension to research, that's what they call it in Europe, the gender dimension, and what we probably call gender equity here. It's very important, but I don't think it actually relates to the science. And the reason I say that is because there's this underlying assumption that if you bring more women in, We'll do more sex differences research. We'll mm-hmm. do more of this research that the men haven't done all along. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that's true. I think women professionalize. You know, we want to succeed just like men want to succeed. And if we feel that an area is not valued, it's unlikely that most of us are going to go into that area for research. Mm-hmm. You know, so while I think it's really important for there to be equity in who has certain kinds of jobs, and ultimately that diversity might be beneficial. I also just want to put a little post-it warning on it, which is that, you know, women are human beings. We're not angels. I think it's a gendered assumption to think that somehow we're going to make things better. We need everybody to try to make things better. (laughs) (laughs) Collaboration is everything. Um, That's going to lead into my last question. So for people listening and currently working on a project where the body of evidence is based on single-sex data, whether it's male or female, and they wanted to start probing these sex differences, but they don't know how, they don't know how to start, what do you want to say to them? The first thing you want to ask yourself is, do you just want to know if there's sex differences or do you want to know what might cause these sex differences? Mm -hmm. So just to find out if there's sex differences, you probably just want to have a large enough sample so that you can disaggregate your data by sex. And also that if you're working with females, human or otherwise, of reproductive age, you might want to have enough in that group that you could look at them when estrogens are high and look at them when estrogens are low. So we found, for example, that this spatial rotation task, which is a mental rotation task, which is supposed to have a male advantage. If you study women during two phases of the menstrual cycle, when estrogens are high, yes, they perform not as well as males. The males have an advantage. But when estrogens are low, they perform just as well as males. Mm -hmm. So it's a much more subtle. What does that mean? It means that I don't think you can really say there's a, quote, male advantage. I see. I think it depends on the activating effects of hormones. Okay. Well, is there anything else you'd like to talk about? Did I miss anything? No, you asked great questions. And yeah, I was happy to talk about all of it. Sweet. sweet. Actually, I have one more question, if that's okay. Um, Sure. Grad school is not an even path, right? And there's there's a lot of times when things just may not be working right. Right. You know, you just don't know. What's That's going true on, right? all the time. At all the time. I'm sorry to tell you this. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like it goes away when you get out of graduate school. <laughs> Fair. But I guess what I wanted to ask is, when you have a student you know, who's deep in this despair, what do you say to them? What do you kind of, is it, is it because the project needs a pivot? Maybe they're just not working hard enough. I don't know about that. 
But like, what do you say to them? I just wanted to get your opinions on yeah, that. Yeah, usually if a student is in despair, that's a very hardworking student who mm-hmm. cares about what they're doing. Yeah. So I would just assume that. I tell students when things aren't working out, that's actually an opportunity because that's when you start thinking really hard about why it's not working out. And you start getting lots of ideas, in fact. And you might actually come to a kind of new idea or new revelation about your hypothesis or how to test it in a different way. You always have to be open to your methods not working, maybe a design not being the best design for the problem itself. And of course, I once had a student say to me, now I understand the re in research. (laughs) Because sometimes you have to go back and do it again. And I think this is where people in qualitative research have an understanding that maybe would help us when we do quantitative research. In qualitative research, the idea is that it's iterative. You're constantly going back and looking at what you found out and how you might change what you're asking going forward. Mm -hmm. And I tend to do quantitative research that way as well. I don't wait until all the data are in to analyze it. I look as I go because I find out, you know, we haven't been doing this thing as successfully as we could, or we need to change our approach to something else. And um, yeah, it's been in some of my darkest moments that I've gotten a better idea of how to do something that maybe wasn't in the grant proposal. I think that's a perfect time to end it. Thanks so much for your time, Dr. Jenny <laughs> you're, wel- you're welcome. <laughs> hey, it's me again. I really hope you like what you heard. For more information about Dr. Einstein and her work, be sure to check out her website at einsteinlab.ca. All right, here's a preview of our next episode. Kat and Aaron sat down with Dr. Camila Zimmerman, a palliative care physician and scientist, to learn about what palliative care is and more importantly, what it isn't. So palliative care isn't only end-of-life care, which is a common misconception. The other misconception is that palliative is only for older people, so it's really for people of all ages. It's not only inpatient care, and it's not depressing, I think, is the other thing. People tend to think of palliative care as depressing, whereas it's really it's filled, of, filled with hope, and it's a, it's a very gratifying career. And here's Dr. Zimmerman talking about her circuitous journey towards becoming a clinician scientist in this field. It makes a lot of sense in retrospect, and life generally is like that, uh, that you look back and you think, oh, well, that actually kind of makes sense, and it does all fall together, and I have you know, now pretty good training, actually, overall, in terms of what I wanted to do. But at the time, it was like, gosh, you know, where on earth am I going? What am I doing? <laughs> you know? Keep an eye out for the full episode coming at you in February. Thanks. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, Faculty of Medicine, or the university. To learn more about the show, visit our website at rawtalkpodcast.com and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our site when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw. I know the simple way of thinking about gender, whether somebody identifies as male or female, is what is usually topmost in people's mind. But the more prevalent forms of gender are what we would call institutional gender and the social aspects of people's lives, how they're treated.